Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Who's the gambit he's going to lead us in? Hello, everybody. It's Bilge Pumps, season 2023. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, series possibly. four? Series four? Yeah, probably <laughs> something like that, if we're doing yeah. it for years. Yeah, yeah, episode 114, I think. Yeah, so it's uh, it's the normal crew. We are back. We have survived. Um, it is a new year, and uh, we shall be discussing... We've been, I mean, we've been brewing up, brewing up a whole vat of fresh bilge over oh, yes. the uh, Christmas break. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely a lot of bilge well, going around out there. I, I, guess, uh, I guess the world's, world's been brewing it up for us. Yeah, honestly, we don't have to do much work now. Nowadays, we just have to log into the news and just go, what are the latest Navy news? Oh, great. Yes, more stupidity. Oh, yeah. It's not necessarily well, stupidity, but trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, there, there's a whole there's a whole, there's a a whole, whole thing to discuss about the Royal Navy, but I think we'll save that for next week. Um, yes, we'll, we'll save the Royal Navy for another time. Well, this, yes. this is the US General's visit to say that uh, you, you, have, you haven't got an army, you haven't got an air force, and your navy can't do anything. No, he yeah. actually he only concentrated on the army. He seems to have said the navy and the air force were fine. But then um, you, honestly, you have one. Well, we, we, we know we, we know he must be lying there because I mean, yeah. all you have to do is look at the air force. Yeah, and, <laughs> we, and, and look, I, I just before we sit in, I will say this: the British army, they. You can always tell when they really are having a trouble because instead of making an idea about something, what they do in politics is they start saying, "Oh, you should cancel this other services project to fund us." Mm. The moment they started after the strategic deterrent and the carriers, and you sit there and go, "Well, the trouble is, a the strategic deterrent is kind of our seat to the table of the United Nations Security Council, so I'm sorry, you're probably not going to win that argument." And the carriers are being supported by both the uh, the RAF and the Navy for once, because the RAF has gone, we don't trust the army to be able to secure air bases anywhere else in the world. So the only way we can get anywhere near any action is going with the Navy. So we will go and uh, we will pump for the carriers as well. The army's in trouble. Well, we also and- we also had the uh, the fun of the of the army because obviously, yeah, you know, it's not just external stuff. We also have inter-service rivalry, like the army going public and saying we don't think the air force and the royal navy are pulling their weight in Ukraine. It's like, <laughs> yes, that 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 well-known you know land ship ability that the royal navy has. Because yeah, I'm, I'm sure don't little... type type twenty three is this... really going to help on the uh, on the front lines in Ukraine. But, and, and what's more, and what's more, this is. is... Very much on target with our subject matter. Yeah, um, yeah. it seems the it seems the British Army has forgotten this little old thing called the Dardanelles. Mm. Oh, it, really? It's just terrible. It worked out so well for us things? last time, didn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then we got you, we, we might get the Greeks on side this time if we tell them just, they can have Byzantium back. They're just. <laughs> The amount of stuff they forget. It's like they're going, at the one point he's going, we need air support for operation. They're going, what, you, oh, I don't think the aircraft carriers, they're white elephants. He's going, literally, an aircraft carrier is mobile air support. It is mobile air support. Mind you. That is, you cannot have one where you say air support is critical for future wars and then say aircraft carriers are white elephants. You can say an aircraft carrier is difficult to defend, 
but so is a land base where your air support comes from. In fact, your land base is probably worse because I can find its location on Google Maps. Mind you, the the uh, the you know the, to to a certain extent. Obviously, we don't know the full extent of his of his comments, but to a certain extent, the the well, I wasn't uh, talking about the American generals. I'm no, but this is what I'm saying. To a certain general, extent, I think the, the U.S. generals should be on television. The U.S. general, I think, to a certain extent, has a point. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, if the government doesn't like being told that they have hollowed out the army in a set series of false economies, then well, Surely maybe they can blame the opposition. That. Hmm? Surely they can blame. Not, not no, they've been in power long enough. They can't. No, they can't get away with that one. Anymore. Well, to be, on, to be honest, neither, neither side has been particularly brilliant about things. No, um, I mean th- th- this is that this is one of the things. Actually, recently I was uh, someone pointed out the you know the state of the Royal Navy. You look at the Royal Navy at the time of the Falklands, and uh, they only built fifty percent of the ships that were lost. They only replaced fifty percent of the ships that were lost, even though the yeah. kind of pointed out that you can't just be NATO's anti-submarine flotilla. Um and then they also started listing all the frigates because we, we had type 21s, type 22s and Leanders. And when you cobble them all together, you end up with something like just over 40 different um frigate sized escorts of varying varying shape way, shapes and forms. And over the course of the next 10 to 15 years, all of those were decommissioned, replaced ostensibly by the Type 23s. But um, I think it was the was it I think it was the Type 21s that were supposed to be replaced by the 23s. Yep. And, and the 23s were cut down in order numbers yeah. usually. And so it was supposed to be like for like on the 23 type 21 to 23 replacement, where we ended up, I think, dropping eight or nine hulls. And then yep. they just got rid of the Leanders and Type Twenty Twos without any hull replacement at all. And then, you know, given that, given how close run thing of a uh, close run the thing the Falklands was, the um, Type Twenty Twos replaced frigate... for the Leanders. The Type Twenty Ones and Twenty Twos were supposed to be replaced by the Type. I think it was Twenty Five, which was theorised, wasn't it? That was going to be the new big frigate to replace the Twenty Two. Possibly, I don't. I don't follow Sorry. that. I, I, I am just remember. I'm just remembering my dad talking about it and ranting about it. And I, I remember reading a bit about it at the time because Montrose had just been decommissioned, mm-hmm. and Montrose was the Type Twenty Three, which I, as a very young boy, and when we're talking young, I'm talking uh, <clears throat> still in primary school, six ish, crawled all over because he was in charge of. He was the uh, naval architect in charge of a construction. And he got he got us to go up there, and I spent two days crawling around inside a frigate under construction, and that was Montrose. But the thing, the so, thing is, you know, yeah. I was quite sad to see her getting decommissioned. Compared, compared, to, I mean, even if you don't, even if you ignore things like the counties and the Type eighty two, uh, etc. If you even if you just look at the Type forty two, compared to the Falklands War, um, we're down to half the destroyer fleet, and if you include the counties and the Type. 82 then more that we're down to we're less down than to a third fleet, and we're down we're to, a to a third, third. Of, yeah and we're down to a third of the frigate fleet and, and don't even start on the submarine fleet yeah but the government's quite happy to stand there and go no 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 we're we're providing all the, the all the um adequate um, defense spending and everything it's like mm-hmm, look look, mm-hmm. look look it's like when someone turns around and goes this modern ship is 10 times the combat capability of the previous ship i go great but ca- is it a tardis because if it isn't, it can still only be in one place at a time. If it's not a TARDIS, it can only be geographically in one space at a time. And if that space is, it's in refit, 
it's in refit and you ain't got it. I'm sorry, but also in nice way, if there's any demonstration, this was something which really annoyed me. One of the discussions that was on about on the on the, the television with one of the generals who was sort of going, "Oh, why does the Royal Navy need to have these these long refits? It's just waste. You could do with less ships." If anything that the Ukraine has shown, if you do not refit your ships, your tanks, your vehicles regularly and maintain them, they fall apart in frigating conflict. That's probably because the um, British Army doesn't have any tanks. Well, they've just sent 14 of them off to Ukraine, so, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, they, 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 they have one, a few one, of them left. One of the one of the things that, um, that it very, very, very much reminded me of was um, I was recently, I've recently been working my way through Admiral Cunningham's autobiography. Yeah. And, uh, you know, during his, I'm not sure if it was six, eight months, something like that, but his his stint in the Admiralty before he was uh, sent back to the Mediterranean fleet just before the outbreak of World War II, he had to contend with what he describes as a never-ending series of false economies that the government had made through budget cuts during the peacetime period, which was massively hampering his ability to get the fleet ready for war. Because everyone, ah, but it'd be cheaper to do this or not pay for this or not maintain that or not replace this. And then suddenly when even, I mean, and let's face it, Britain was rearming for, what, three or four years at least in the run up. Well, to let's World be honest, Admiral Henderson starts a program hmm. of investing in shipyards and armor production in 1933 when he gets made third sea lord. And he basically screams and hollers to get the money, then goes around and starts giving it. And if you don't have that money invested in the infrastructure, then you do have nothing. And even, and even at that, and even at that point, they were struggling. They were struggling just to get the fleet ready for war, let alone build yeah. new ships. And yeah. you know, he he points out we increased the manufacture of guns uh, and armor by five hundred percent. We increased the manufacture of range finding and fire control systems by nine hundred percent. It still wasn't anything close to enough because the original of the peacetime production numbers were so abysmally low. It was like, great, right, yeah. we we get five guns this year instead of one. Happy days. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I was sort of going, yeah, this 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 is sounding very very familiar. Yeah, About the, it, the, 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 it the, the one sort of dark element to all of that is that, um, in Admiral Cunningham's opinion, both poor old Admiral Henderson and the first Sea Lord, right up until the very last minute, Admiral Backhouse, probably worked themselves to death trying to yep. fix the problems. Yes, because uh, poor. The funny thing is, poor uh, poor old. Um, Dudley Pound, who ended up as first Sea Lord, only got dragged into the role about six months before the war broke out because Backhouse killed himself through overwork. Yep, um, and Henderson did, did did pretty much the same. Mm. And if you look, you find an entire generation of Royal Navy officers who were involved in the preparation for the Royal Navy before the war basically worked themselves to death. We lose, we often talk about, and there's been various conspiracies theories about why the Royal Navy loses so many senior admirals in the run up to World War II in the last few months and year year before World War II. And it's literally they've worked themselves to death to try and get the fleet ready for war. And there's no conspiracy theory. It's just they've spent that much time trying to deal with the governments. They literally, Stress. it is death by government. It's death by dealing with people going, but it would be cheaper to do it this way. And, oh, we could spend, we can spread the building over five years instead of three, mm -hmm. and it's going to save this much money. But we need it now. 
And it didn't, it didn't, I mean, to be honest, you see some of that similar effect going on in, in other countries. I mean, the US had two and a half-ish additional years grace before the Japanese showed up over Pearl Harbor. Um, so they didn't lose too many admirals in the run-up to World War II. But if you look at the um, number of senior officers who keeled over immediately after World War II and how relatively young they were, even for the period, um, yeah. that even, what, 42, 43, 44, and a bit of 45, three and a half years of high-intensity conflict took a massive toll of the U.S. senior officer corps. Uh, and there were some of them who, who dropped off the, the radar during the war as well. So Look at Cunningham himself. Look at some, <clears throat> Somerville was invalided out through ill health, brought back to be an assistant, then sent all around the world as actually a, an operational officer. He, you know, in nicest way, he was walking wounded. Cunningham died shortly after World War Two. Uh, you know, the, the, we forget the sheer amount of strain these people went through. And frankly, I, I am not quite sure how Churchill survived as long as he did. I think probably the alcohol in the, it kept him going. <laughs> because pickled. The, the yeah. one thing you can you can disagree with Churchill all you like. The one thing you have to admit is he's consistent through the 30s. We need to be rearming more than we're doing. Give, he's give actually him, is give... fighting. He, give him his due where he's due. You know, he has got many problems, but give him his due. He was actually fighting that fight. Given the given the qualities of alcohol as a blood thinner, I suspect with Churchill it was a case it was physically <laughs> impossible for him to have a heart attack, aneurysm, or, or stroke because there wasn't enough blood left in his circulatory system. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> but it works. But, so, I mean, how many how many um admirals are working themselves to death at the moment then? Um who knows? <laughs> well, to, to be the... to be honest, the, the one the one the big difference between the late nineteen thirties rearmament and now is that for for all the various faults and screw ups that the government had made during the interwar period, at least in the late nineteen thirties, they were giving the navy some money to rearm. So there was work there was work to overdo. <laughs> at the moment, the government's looking at everything. Going, ah, yes, the world is possibly the least stable it's been in you know most voters' lifetimes. I know what we'll do. We'll cancel the Navy's next generation of frigates. That seems like a cracking plan. Um, well, they haven't. They've cancelled the Type 32s. And we've been over that before again. The Type 32s, they haven't cancelled the ships. They've cancelled calling them the Type 32. And yeah, frankly, but we we know we know we know this. Too. This is this is the UK <laughs> government. This will be. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're not going to do them the Type Thirty Twos. We're going to do them as 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 uh, extension of the existing programs. And then it's going about yeah. But we've already budgeted the existing programs. We can't. We don't have the budget for extending the existing program. But we're going to do some up. We're going to just completely scrap those hulls. But we're going to do some additional upgrades to these previous hulls to make up for the fact we're cancelling these ships we haven't built yet. And then it'll be oh yeah, but you know there's not enough space and it's for but not with. So we'll do it at some other point and you'll eventually end up with just the type 31s and a bunch of paperwork that shows you could have had the type 32s but now you can't <laughs> yeah um anyway speaking of frigates and next generations um apparently some enterprising person with a speaking of google with some google maps photography <laughs> um has spotted the chinese have decided they are going to build a new frigate apparently oh, yeah. destroy it Frigate destroyer or something of those. Well, they're calling it a frigate. Well, once again, what, you know, what's the point? I mean, it's a how many VLS tubes is it? Is, it, is this a ship of a what 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 line ship is this? 
<laughs> well, I mean, because let's face it, um, frigate destroyer cruiser irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to tell from a slightly um, a slightly hazy satellite image, but you can you can see the uh, you can see a, 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 definitely there's a void space up front for a VLS. Well, cluster let's, array let's, and it looks to the... me like there's space aft for another set mm. if um, we I go by the type 54a they have a 32 cell vls two quad packed anti-ship missile systems then they have a 76 mm dual purpose gun um two type 730 ciws systems uh two triple U7 anti-submarine warfare torpedo launchers, some anti-submarine torpedo rocket launchers, and they carry a helicopter. Now, what we do know is the Chinese, whilst they're all called the Type 54A, they've produced the Type 54A+, the Type 54A2, and the Jinkai, and the Jinkai 2. Which and of course there's the tour grill class frigates, which are their modified ones they produce for Pakistan. So they seem to be doing an evolutionary design, and so far these vessels seem to be getting, how to put this politely, bigger as they go and having more fitted them. So I would say, in my in my in my personal belief, looking at this, if they're probably looking at something which is bigger, we're probably looking forty eight, maybe even sixty four VLS. Yeah, well, I mean, it, which would we... fit with their sort of their growth, because if you consider there's the Type 52 to the 55, the 52 is the destroyer, mm. destroyer line, and now the 55 is the new destroyer line, which looks everyone's going as a cruiser because it's massive. I mean, if we if we assume that they're putting a 32 cell forward, similar to the 54, uh, the existing yeah. 54A, then by footprint. What's probably their amidships VLS array on this hull, which um, in the 54As I think is just um, vaguely horizontal surface surface missile launchers. It looks to be about the same size of, yeah. in the hull, so that would be another 32 cell array, which would be a 64 cell array. Which I think, yeah, that kind of comes back to Jamie's point. Assuming that these are full length VLS tubes, um, you know, 64 medium to long range surface to air missiles that's actually well into destroyer level armament i mean but it could be <laughs> unless and until we get this unless and until we get the new cells in the 45s it's actually got 50 percent more missiles than a type 45 and not and the new upgraded cells in the type 45 aren't going to be all well the new upgraded ones won't be full length strike full they're going to be c-scepters yeah um, the thing is, that could be they're going to be because again, that's going to be quite high up in the ship. That could be they could be doing the same thing as we're doing with the city class and the type 26s, etc. Uh, the city, uh, the type 26 the city class, where they've got the VLS, which is higher up, is going to be surface to air missiles and it's the shorter range, so it's a shorter VLS rather than a full strike length cells, but still cells. I guess it would be, I guess it would be rather hard to get the depth of midships, wouldn't it? It'd still need to there is a, a there is a very large funnel. There is a very mm. large funnel hole not far from that VLS hole, so I I would say that that would probably be a factor. Mm. So yes, I would... but then again, you know, uh, again though, you know, these ships will 
at least initially, be operating closer to home, therefore easier to reload. Um, and yet it's still got a hmm. uh, nice Will they... uh, large magazine. Um, for Are they going to be up for... Well, well, are they going to be operating close? It's initially, it's going to have to. But remember, they we're still talking hmm. about the same navy, which is slowly building up their carrier forces. Oh yeah, yeah. but but you're, so okay, but you've got to look at the first, you know, the, the step one mm. for them is the first island chain, and that yeah. means Taiwan's in the way. It means the Philippines in the way. It means Malaysia, Singapore, uh, Indonesia, and Japan are in the way. And no, they they don't know, need whatever whatever it's, whatever it's a long whatever it's a long term distant ambitions are um, it's got to get past the first island chain and large parts of that island chain if not all of it are going to be taking sides probably against it and they uh, appear to be working so to, to do so I mean Japan and um, has obviously very much uh, you know um, jumped uh, jumped on well the, the, um, the Japanese have done the, the exact the alarm button to what Europe yeah. is currently doing, which is where they've gone, hang on, we've got a rising threat. We are going to start putting money in our defense. And the Philippines is inviting um, the US to start basing stuff on in, on its islands again, which is a you know a, a major step back from the uh, colonial era um, rejection that we saw in the 80s. And um, even Indonesia is starting to act a little bit uh, nervous, even though it's still trying to sit on the fence. And, um, and poor um, old Singapore, the poor old Singapore is yet again looking down the barrel of being. We just happen to be in this incredibly important strategic spot, and we're just a tiny little um, island nation. That um, how the hell you know how the hell we're going to avoid a repeat of history? So, uh, well, I, I did find know. it funny that they've um, provided money to upgrade. Uh, <clears throat> let's went to, I'm not sure if they provided money, but money has been found to upgrade. The uh, Royal Navy base in Singapore, and the facilities mm -hmm. there have been up, are being upgraded. And you sit there and go, "Where did that money come from?" Because I didn't think there was money in the British Defence budget for this, but they've appeared somewhere, and the money has appeared, and the base is getting a bit of an upgrade. So, I think it's the point something... of this the, the, the point of this island chain argument is once again, of course, is uh, it's, a, it's an unusual position, isn't it, where defenders will have to come from a long way away. Yes. Which uh, means they've got to get there, they've got to stay there, they've got to be sustained there, and they've got to be able to get back again. Well, that that's um, the fundamental problem we've got in most of the Western militaries, because let's be honest, since even since before the end of the Cold War, it's arguable that the policy had almost developed, and it, this was to an extent encouraged at certain points by certain American administrations, not all the American administrations, and sometimes not all across the entire administration. There is a factor that the Americans are the only navy in the West, which is, and you can argue whether this is still true to this day, but was at the time really building for a war footing. Because if you consider the Type 42s versus the Arley Burks, the fact is the British and you know should have looked at it and gone, hang on, what have we got going on here with our Type 82s, our Type 42s, and then the Arley Burks, etc., and other systems coming to us. The, 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 you, you can look at the Type 42s and go, you might have been in the 1970s, but by the 1980s, someone should have gone Type 42 batch 2 VLS or something like that, not carried on with CDART as it was. It would have been sensible. You know, post-Falklands uh, post War, if there was any time to sit around and go, 
you know what? We need to start doing a change in the thinking of our construction. We need to start thinking these things through. Uh, we need to reevaluate it. It would have been after Falklands War, but they didn't. They doubled down because I, they could do. I mean, the, the other thing that I, I would point out when it comes to just generally is, um, you know, obviously, what's the best way of putting this? You know, this isn't designed to you know, be singing China's praises to the high heavens, because let's face it, there's there's no. an awful lot wrong with China. But, you know, we were talking about the Royal Navy earlier. The Type 23 design is What's older than three? any of us. Yeah. And we still haven't got the ostensible Type 26 successor in service. So you're looking at... Well, the Type 26 was actually the, uh, actually arguably the successor to the Type 22, which was never built. Hmm. That's uh, the thing. Because the, the, the Type 23 was the light frigate. It wasn't yeah. supposed to be the long-term it, it's, it's taken us. It's taken the UK about three and a half to four decades to turn out a successor frigate. Yeah. Um, the Chinese were building you know, the Type 054A, um which is uh that which is the previous to the 54 i know sorry the, 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 get my teeth in straight probably sorry um they they were building the type 51c looking at destroyers now they're building the type 51c in the early 2000s so you know design freeze on the 50, 51c's had to take place in um you know, around about 2000, 2001 at the latest. And since then, they've worked their way through various iterations of type uh, of, of destroyer. Then they, and they've got up to the type 52 Ds. So they're, they're starting construction in 2012. So it's taken them okay. probably around about a decade to go from a 51 C, which is to a 51 D or 52 D, sorry. And then yeah. from the 52D, which you know probably designed for is around 2010, 2011, for them to then turn out the Type 055, which is a significantly larger and more capable ship. Um, well, they started building those in 2014. So even if they were working on the 55 whilst they were still finalizing details on now the 52, or even if you just go all the way back to the 051, they've been able to turn out effectively three different ships include you know going from relatively basic about as capable as some nations frigates to you know top end destroyer in just over a decade which is about a third of the time it's taken the royal navy to decide to replace a single frigate and if you, you look at the same kind of it's the same kind of pattern with a type 42s going to the type 45s in the Royal Navy, or if you looked at the various yeah. Chinese frigate developments, the... it always comes down to the it always comes down to the three M's: motivation, manpower, and money. Now, you know they've had a national they've they've got national pride, you know, and you know, um, the the greater glory of the um, Chinese Communist Party, I suspect, mm. as their motivation. Um, they've got the manpower in the sense of being. Well, one of the world's, well, the world's most populous, pop uh, no, second most popular now. I think India's mm -hmm. uh, edged, edged and it out. There's, well, there's been out but they've invested it. They've invested. Yeah. They've invested in manpower now for several decades in terms of, let's face it, how many engineers they spit out on a daily basis. 
Um, and then, of course, you know, there's no doubt about it. They've they've done what the US did in the 1930s and 1920s. They've turned themselves into an absolute economic um, hotspot. Meanwhile, the US is in the same position that Britain was in in the 1930s, declining economy, having to pay for all this aging infrastructure and an unwillingness to um, address the underlying issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's uh, it, it, naturally you will be seeing it uh, pumping out um, more designs quicker as an experiment. It can, it can ex- afford to experiment. Um, I don't know That's whether something you it, have it, in the West you it, can't it, do. I guess, can I guess it's not. I guess it's not so much. Um, just it's not only a matter of they can afford to experiment. Um, mm-hmm. It's also a matter of they've got the ability. That they, they seem to have the, which is rather odd for a communist country. They seem to have the willingness to take a risk. Whereas at the moment we're looking at. Um, plans for the US to reshuffle a few deck chairs on the Titanic by moving a few bulkheads here and there on the Alley Burks in order to give these um, age-old holes quote-unquote extra space for bigger power plants and laser-based weapons. So, you know... Um, yeah. the, the, thing, the thing is, it shouldn't take this long to design a new warship. You know, yeah, China's got a bigger economy. It's got more men to crew more ships and so forth. But at the end of the day, there's a finite number of people that you need to actually make a new design um, and agree that this is what should be built next. And, you know, you know, look at how long it took us to decide on the Type 45. Look at how long it took us to decide on the Type 26. I mean, even even the 31s and 30, and well, now scrap 30s, but even the Type 31s, which are largely largely based on pre-existing designs it yeah. takes far 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 too long to design a new ship class it seems in in the west it gets far too bogged down in bureaucracy and what the americans would call pork barreling and what we would just call regular old corruption <laughs> and so forth it's it's a bit ridiculous really um, and, and it I mean, becomes it, it, too much you... of a political football if you think about yeah. it in you probably still have the same problem in China, etc. I, I can see it being a problem in terms of their version of corruption, i.e., different politicians pushing for different <clears throat> systems, etc. Depending on which I, I think they, it comes from. I think they've burned through several um, shipyard um, heads over the carrier production program, for example. Mm. Yeah, but you see, in the UK, and um, you can the amount of times you will have people who go, you have the people on the political spectrum who don't want to build any warships at all because there's never going to be another war, or they don't want Britain to go out there and do anything. Then you've got the ones who think, oh, no, no, we should spend all our money on the army. Or the ones who spend, should spend all the money on the Air Force or the Navy. Or they're the ones who want to spend all the money on the, Air Force, the Navy. And then you've got the two groups which are the most, uh, most problematic. You've got the ones who aren't experts but believe they know everything because they might Shit, have had a bit of service. Like or they've got a, they've got a friend who's like a bit of a service. Wait, till, uh, wait you'll, see, you'll hear the next group, then you'll realise they are us. Um, and they, as politicians, will spend their entire time in every defense, in every meeting you have on any subject, relating it back to can you do this? I was there was one defense select committee committee meeting at one point a few years ago where one of the MPs asked an admiral, "Yes, but how big an infantry battalion can you fit on the destroyer? Because as we all know, what you need in war is infantry and boots on the ground, and <laughs> that's not what a destroyer is for. That's what the amphibious ship is for." Uh, mm. And then you have the people who actually do care and do take a passion, i.e. people like us in 
do go and apply themselves to study and actually think it through. Well, the trouble is we can be the most difficult of all to satisfy because we are often going to push for the perfect solution, which might not get through rather than accepting necessarily the viable solution, which could get built. I know I don't think with anyone in this conversation there's any of us like that, but there are you've all we've all probably heard it. Some of our friends, some of the people we know who we really love, they will sit there and go, Oh, it's terrible. This ship doesn't have this, 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 and list all the systems it doesn't have. And you sit there and go, Yes. So you're spending a lot of time bashing it, which then gives ammunition to the people who want to cut funding completely to say this ship isn't worth investing in. To be honest, and at that point, I have to say you're lucky. To, you like you're lucky. You've got a ship. Yeah, this is the point. <laughs> we the, we the, don't. This is the point. I, I just get the ship. Get the ships. You know, if we look at the Ali Burke debate, the amount of times people are shouting at it, and I agree because I sit there and go, "It's a 1970s design. Surely we've got something better right now to design and build." But the problem is, it's what you're building right now. And if you spend your time taking pot shots of the systems you're building right now, it's very difficult for you to justify the systems which are going to come after them. Well, I mean, the, the, the other thing is that it's a comparison I think I may have made before on a on an old episode of Bilge Pumps. But you know, even if even if you say, okay, yeah, China's got a lot more money than than we do, so in theory they are always going to have the larger navy because that's how economies work. Um, but if you well, A, look at how many ships have we built in the last 20 years versus China. <laughs> That's a little embarrassing. Um, we're we're yeah. riding on a lot of, other, you know, in terms of major surface combatant hulls, the the overall percentage majority of hulls that the Royal Navy has uh, were built before China went on its building spree. Um, yeah. But if you, just, if you just do an approximate economic divide, depending on whose figures you accept if you average it out china has an economy about five and a half times the size of the uk but if you look at the chinese let's just look at their major combatant fleets rather than the niche stuff like carriers and so forth where a single carrier can make a massive percentage difference but if you just look at things like submarines and destroyers frigates you know the, the major surface combatants if we were proportional to china then the submarine fleet should be something like 15 nuclear attack subs, because uh, we don't do diesels. Um, we should we have something have around seven. about 10 to 12 destroyers, which magically enough is exactly what the Type 45 program was supposed to give us. Um, yep. And we should have something along the lines of 15 to 20 frigates, depending on exactly how you divide up the tonnage between, because the Chinese have, a variety of frigates and corvettes so lots of smaller hulls so if depending on how you aggregate the tonnage versus hull numbers we should have somewhere between 15 to 20 frigates so in other words approximately speaking the royal navy is about has about half the hulls of its major combatant hulls that it should based on a purely economical analysis and this has an impact because the this is something which people don't understand. The more you build something, the tends to be the cheaper it gets. The last Type 23s were an absolute steal versus the first ones. And this was the same with the Type 45s. We talk about the cost of the Type 45s, about their billion pounds per, per hmm. unit, etc. That's the development cost as well as the construction cost. Considering the construction cost was going down, the next six you built would have been, the next two batches of three, would have been a lot cheaper. And that would have brought down, and then that would take, let's say, 
you start off with an average cost of 400 million of 400 million in the first first batch and it was supposed to be 600 uh, 600 million per per for, for each of the each of the six built uh, in, uh, in terms of development so it's 3.6 billion if you spread that over 12 units that's 300 million added on per unit and if you consider the average price for those units would have probably gone down to roughly 250 million per unit then you'd have had a lot of an average price which would have been half a billion a unit which would have been far more sensible and far well, more is this why is, is this you know i guess this is the thinking behind um the common frigate design now between um canada uk australia and why they're so different <laughs> Well, it's the common thinking design behind why they tried to start out working together. And you yes. basically... This, you is kind of like, this is the way it always ends up, though, isn't it? Because every company uh, yeah. has, has its own circumstances. And, and unfortunately, and, uh, no matter how much we get to get told, one size fits all just doesn't work still. And that's yet another it, subject we keep going back to, which means we've got yeah. to try and think of new things to talk about on this show. Because otherwise, <laughs> I will start my thing of free hull designs. Large, medium, and small. And for some reason, two nations are trying to cram everything into the small. One is trying to cram into the medium, and not a single one has gone for the large. <laughs> but speaking, it's too expensive. Why? <laughs> it's too expensive. Whereas you can spend all this money Still... on fixing the problems. You can fix spend all this money fixing the problems of the small one that's too small, or you can spend up the money up front. <laughs> it's the same expense. Okay, yes, you need a slightly longer infrastructure. You need slightly to make the yard slightly bigger. But seriously, it would have saved so much stress. You, 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 instead of you cramming the stuff into this tiny hole, you could have had space, and it would have been the same so, cost. Because let's be honest, steel and air is so. What you're saying? Stuff you stick in the ship, which is the expense. So what you're saying is the uh, attempt to reconfigure the book isn't, isn't a good idea? It's a, twilight, it's a terrible idea! <laughs> it's, oh, it's like taking an apartment block and going, you know what, I don't like this block of flats. Instead of knocking it down and starting again, I'm going to so, knock so, out the internal walls! This, dear listeners, is what happens when the um, the builders get locked up for um, for two months and uh, and and it hasn't been vented in, in all that time. Now, so we're now getting the the release of um, well, of, of super enhanced gases from um, below the decks right now. The Type G star that is Doctor Clark <laughs> is currently undergoing a supernova event. Um, uh, the the the. The yeah, moving on. Yeah, that's a good segue though. Moving on to the um, the Arlie Burks and the internal restoration, uh, not restoration, reworking of <laughs> what they want to add to it. Um, and and you know the funny thing is, again, we're looking at this and going, the Arlie Burke can't currently accommodate certain weapons, so we need to make more space and add more things to it so that it can. Um, but we're not going to, you know, we don't want to change the hull because, you know, we've apparently tried to redesign, well, first the Zumwalt, then the DDGX and the CGX, and now back to DDGX, but we still haven't made a decision about it, which in some ways it kind of mirrors the whole thing of how long it takes to took the Royal Navy to move from the Type 42 to the Type 45. But nonetheless, there is, an, uh, you know, a rather interesting historical precedent for this, which is um, when you look at the, in again, look at the interwar period, 
<sighs> Sorry about that. Um, I'll be. Sorry, I think what I think if I'm if I'm guessing what Drax was just about to talk about, he's probably going to talk about the Crown Colony class cruisers, which of course the British had in World War Two and have led to Crown, many, Crown many famous things. The Crown Colonies. Yeah, these are the these are the um, these are the Eva, London these, these are, these cruisers. Are the, these are the these are the devolution of the town class. Yes, it's basically let's we've got a great cruiser design. Let's crap all over it and make it worse. Well, we're um, going to make it smaller the, and cheaper. Yeah, no, we've got bit, to make it. But, no, we've got to make it smaller because we've got to fit with the treaty limitation, which is now eight thousand tons. It was ten thousand tons. So they take okay. a. The Crown Colonies are basically a budget cut price town. Yes, we know. And it's kind of like the Exeter class, Exeter's, Exeter and HMF and her sister York, York, which were cut price counties. And you sit there and go, yes, these are good ships with good, well, that's they're good crews. They're ships out. which try their best. <laughs> but honestly, no. Building a cut price county, building a cut price town is not a good way to go if you want something which is going to actually be a long-term legacy asset. And there is this strange thing that happens after World War II where the Royal Navy tries everything to keep the towns in service for as long as they can rather than the Crown Colonies because they know they're not as good. And oddly enough, they keep several of the, um, the counties around as well. Yes, everything they can oh. to try and avoid relying even, on the crown though, colonies. Yeah, the counties yes. by that stage, of course, are rather long in the tooth, and yes, um, but you know, uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is yours. Yeah. That's all right. No, I, I got post, but um, no, it pretty much picked up on on what the point I was going to make, which is yeah, you've got these the crown colonies. You try to fit everything in them, which okay, there, there's a certain they're logic to what they're trying to do at the time of. London 2, but once it becomes clear that London 2 isn't going to work, you know, the, the US, for example, had a London 2 compliant treaty, a light cruiser design ready to go, um, an 8,000 tonner. Uh, it looked a little bit like a, if you imagine a Brooklyn class, but with twins instead of triples, that's basically roughly what they'd come up with. But when they saw that, okay, actually, you know, London 2 is dead, they scrapped that and they got the Clevelands. And even the Clevelands, although they proved to be fairly resilient to upgrades for the beginning of World War II, by the time you got to the end of World War II, even the Clevelands were suffering a somewhat from uh, stability issues due to all the additional top weight they'd had to add for anti-aircraft systems and radar and so on and so forth. And, well... You know, the less said about what they did aesthetically and stability-wise to them, to some of them in the aftermath when they converted them to missile ships, the, be the better. But <laughs> with the Crown Colonies, you were starting out with this 8,000-ton hull, and then they kept building them or variations thereof, which there, there's was, a... Was that, though, was that part of the, the, the emergency program, though? There, there, there was, a, there's, a I mean, there's a certain amount of forgiveness you can you can give because it was in wartime and they're trying to build things as quickly as possible. But the thing is that I think personally that only gets you so far because 
the argument about building things like the wartime emergency destroyer flotillas and so forth was that you know this is a design that we already have therefore we can build it quickly and iterate somewhat on it and and off we go but when you look at um the royal navy obviously they had the original towns they had the belfast edinburgh subgroup which were larger and originally designed for the quadruple six inch and then because of the treaty they dropped down to the um crown colony size but they still had the plans for the towns they still had the plans for belfast and edinburgh and when you look at the total length of construction it actually doesn't cost much more in terms of time to build a belfast or an edinburgh as it does a crown colony and as i said you you already have the plans and one is far 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 more capable than the other but by the you know by the end of the second world war the crown colonies had a long ago lost one of their triple six inch turrets to make room for the extra weight of weapons and so forth and by the end of the war most of the towns had gone that way as well but the some of the last of the crown colonies they didn't even bother building them with that fourth triple in the first place because they knew they were going to have to save the weight um whereas belfast of course is sitting on the thames at the moment in part because as the larger variant she was able to retain pretty much all of her weaponry and accommodate all of the upgrades uh and so yeah I, I think broadly speaking if you look at what what's the capability of a crown colony what does it give to the royal navy if all uh, the derivatives you know the swiftures and minotaur etc etc when they're launched in the mid to late part of the war compared to okay if we'd have to wait a month longer to get a improved Belfast, which the Royal Navy kept looking at and kept rejecting for various reasons. Um, it was just, I think it was a really bad move because there's only, if you've it got a hull move. that is now undersized for what you need to get into it, the solution it is... It was no longer a, a frontline warship. Yeah, it's no longer frontline. You have At that point, you have to build a larger ship or you have to accept that your existing hull is no longer a frontline ship and if you are going to fit it with new and modern weapons you're going to now place it into a niche role not a general purpose role and it's going to become a second line ship and the slightly bizarre thing is at the same time that they were making the decisions to continue with crown colonies and derivatives thereof they were actually making at the other end of the spectrum of cruisers a re the relatively good decision of looking at the various c-class cruisers and going right there's absolutely no way these little sort of five ish thousand ton things are ever going to be frontline warships again and they started a program where they converted some of them into anti-aircraft cruisers and at that point it yeah. was an acknowledgement yeah these things are never going to go on the front line you know an anti-aircraft cruiser can even barely fight off a particularly heavily armed hilfskreuzer but by we get some use out of the hull by turning it into this pure anti-aircraft ship that can then support our bigger ships and keep them occupied whereas the crown colony logic and to a certain extent the uh this new arlie burke improvement program um seems to be you know more along the lines of either trying to do what they did with the crown colonies cram everything aboard and then suddenly discover that it doesn't actually work and the whole thing has to be decommissioned in 10 15 years time or if somebody had looked at the c-class and gone 
you know what we need? We need to stick a bunch of heavy radar on this thing, and we're going to strip out a ton of other stuff, probably the, the Crown Colony classes, the torpedo launchers or something, and then have this hilariously overweight, somewhat unstable, probably now 6,000-ton displacement World War One vintage cruiser go charging off into the Mediterranean and the Pacific, trying to take on all and sundry twice its size. And I, I kind of worry... With the with the Burks, that this is the first step down that kind of road. I can first explain step, I mean, the logic what, what, behind what, what, what the Crown Colony decision. I can explain the logic. I don't agree with the logic behind the Crown Colony, but there is a logic, and logic kept going back to the government was obsessed. The go- overarching government above was obsessed with a it wasn't going to be a long war, and b they needed to build ships as quickly as possible, and so that one month difference in build time became absolutely a massive priority and you of course also first have you have the pause of construction because they pause capital ships they pause cruisers they pause aircraft carriers because you don't need them because this is going to be a short war and we're we're just going to focus on the escorts because we are going to be fighting lots of submarines and then the Mediterranean kicks off and you start to lose cruisers and you start to lose ships and then it's sort of going hang on hang on what do we need to do and then it's about the end of 1940 that they really start to kick back and start going, actually, you need to build those carriers, we need to build those cruisers, we need to build those ships quickly, quickly, quickly. And then they're just chucking the cycle of building them as quickly as they can because they did have that pause. And that is the really problematic thing because they're just stuck in a cycle and they don't think about how to get out of it. No one's willing to stop and take a step back and go, hang on, is this really sensible? Because they look at the other designs, they see the advantages of the other designs, but they're so stuck in that cycle of we've got to get ships out as quickly as possible because of that pause, because of the war, because of the losses, that that one month differential is considered absolutely critical. When in fact, when you think about it, uh, you can probably shave a month off a town class's construction integration time and service into entry because of the fact you have the sheer number of existing crews who are used to working them. Yeah, I, mean, I, get that. I guess that comes back to the point, isn't it? You, you, it's 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 more always, always more than just the surface consideration. So I mean, let's look at the why are they doing this to the books? Why are they redesigning the interior to accommodate the power plant and capacitors necessary to operate a laser-based weapon, a close-in defense weapon, and um, to um, other electronic um you know, warfare systems. And I guess it's because it's irrelevant without them. So yeah. given that given that this design work and remedial work is, is actually designed is actually intended to be reverse fitted to existing ships as well. Uh, which I suppose tie up uh, dockyards that they don't have now that they've decommissioned several of them. Um you know, it, it's is it a situation of if you don't do this, then you're you're also going to have a whole lot of vessels without the equipment necessary to handle a modern scenario, without that radar, without the um, you know the the various director control systems that, that um, you know uh, a, a, a te- the, the crown colonies were were designed with from the outset, so. I, actually, yeah, this is, because this is this isn't this isn't an example where the ship has been shrunk. It's an example where the ship has stayed the same, and it, 
new capacity is being worked into it. So well, speak- it, the, the crown col- the crown colony isn't a perfect example. There. It's not. But, but then when you when you uh, when you but, look at yeah. the um, when you look at the various designs that come out after the war, I mean, not many people are building cruisers. About the only people building cruisers in the immediate post war environment is the US. Well, like in the Russians, I guess. Um, but you know, if you look at the Worcesters and the Des Moines, they are far bigger than the Clevelands and the Baltimores. And if you look at destroyers, which a lot more people are building, if you look at the, say, the Forest Sherman compared to the gearing, the daring compared to the battle, um, and yep. and so on and so forth, people looked at, you know, yeah, we've we've had to upgrade our old ships with all these new systems. They've become unstable. We've had to start making sacrifices on their combat capability. Therefore, we need a new ship. And they got down and designed that new ship, whereas um, in the with, with this program, in and of itself, the new system upgrades they're putting in, as you kind of said, are probably necessary to keep them viable in in the immediate future. The problem really is why are you having to do this in the first place? Now, okay, you could you know hull whether or not it's a a, a better hull aside or not, you can make an argument that perhaps the Zumwalts as they came out were you know the, a, a legacy of the cold war where people were assuming ever increasing defense budgets but that didn't that doesn't necessarily stop you from designing a derivative hull mm-hmm. with with a more conventional weapons layout and at the end of the day how long has it been since they designed frozen Zumwalt class i mean it, it kind of in some ways it kind of pings back to what we were saying earlier about the chinese navy the the US Navy has been through multiple design studies, each of which has cost far too much and each of which has co- taken far too long, all of which have ended up resulting in basically nothing. So we, we they they shouldn't the for the situation that they're in, it's you know it's probably forgivable that they're having to do this. But the you know the fact that they're in this situation in the first place is kind of the problem. They they should at yeah. this stage have been you know 12, 15, 20 ships in to the next generation of destroyers, which would have easily been able to accommodate all of this. And okay, I would I to... want to just uh, do, add something quickly. For starters, I have a name we should watch out for and check on his health of Rear Admiral James Parkin. The guy in charge of the Royal Navy's development team, who's managed to push, is man is trying to upgrade and sort out the Royal Navy and help their technology at the moment. So basically, someone should probably be checking himself quite regularly and making sure he's not working himself to death. Um, he's very hard work. You can follow him on Twitter. But um, at the same point as we're retiring Type 23s, HMS Somerset has just announced yesterday that she was upgrade that work had begun to upgrade and fit her with the naval strike missile to replace harpoons. Now, here is the interesting thing. We are replacing Harpoon with Naval Strike Missile. Now, Naval Strike Missile is slightly better than Harpoon and is slightly newer. But it's sort of also rearranging the deck chairs, isn't it? In that, as much as I like the Naval Strike Missile, it's kind of a case of, yes, we're replacing the Harpoon. We've got this old, uh, we've got the Type 23, which we're adding Sea Scepters on. We are basically turning our old light frigate into we're just replacing the systems on it and we're doing a it's a crown colony style thing 
you know it's I mean, look, it's I, being I, I, it's being upgraded but you know the weight and the you're working this hull uh, we're talking about the Arleigh Burks the the type 23 hull is smaller and tighter and almost the same age but yeah the, the retrofits can work well um they can let's think of this I'm pleased with them I just I wish we had more type 23 being fitted with them more spike Queen Elizabeth made a massive difference these old World War One obsolescent vessels were 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 back to being frontline renowned just long enough and renowned renowned back to being frontline for just long enough you know 1940 41 42 after that they became redundant again or too far behind view relevant but you know, I don't think Warsaw ever admitted she was behind or irrelevant. <laughs> but the, 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 at, you know, uh, at the time it was needed, it got, it gave them that edge of capability, and that was an expensive rebuild, extensive rebuild. Uh, same thing with London. I mean, they had problems with re- rebuilding London, but in the end, she ended up being fairly fairly uh, worthwhile as a heavy cruiser. But so, and, and the argument for these Burks is that. Is very similar to the Warspite and London arguments. Advances in power plant technology means they can reduce, save fifty to thirty to fifty percent of the space needed for that um, engineering you know, for the engine rooms. Why not use that space which, which we can easily save for something more useful? So it's not as, as though they are, you know, um, cutting back the size of the bunk beds. Um, that you can sleep in. It's not as though they are reducing refrigerator space. It's, um, it's not, I'd never be surprised even, if even, they did even, announce they were doing that. Even, even though they have to rearrange all those things to, to fit these um, components in, these these new electronic warfare capacitor and, and distributing and generator systems. But, but think just how many systems, how is, many is cables that, you're going to move in a modern ship design. But, 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 but again, though, I mean, it's, it's not... Necessarily, um, you know, as bad as as the Crown Colony example that you're giving once again, because they are making this saving in weight and space from upgraded power plants. And, you know, that, to me, that's a bit of a no-brainer. It worked out quite effectively for, extremely effectively, especially for Renault, and especially yeah. for um, the Queen Elizabeth and Valiant. So I, you know, I, I, I agree it does work out if it's done well, but also the it's gonna sound terrible, but here's the point I'm making. On the ships we're talking about in those sort of periods, they didn't have as many cables and as many comm signals and things going around. And we all know how those cables matter. The data movement matters around the ship. And it's going to be a lot of especially when you're adding in power systems for new radars and you're adding in a lot of power generation facilities and a lot of capability like that and sort of banks for la- for lasers i think is also what they're sort of looking at you are adding in a lot of stuff into a hull and taking a lot of stuff out and rebuilding it and putting it back in and yes the ship will could probably work well but it's not going to work well quickly there are going to be problems and the trouble is the amount of risk adverse. This is the thing. When Warspite, Vanguard, Queen Elizabeth, not Vanguard, uh, um, Valiant, Valiant, and Renowned were all done, there were problems. They came out. They weren't problem. There were problems, mm. and they had to go back and fix them. And that's fine. They were happy to do that. Today, 
what the the normal reaction is to cut the whole program because you can't afford to look bad and blame it on your predecessor. And also, the, the other the other big difference is, of course, is they weren't planning on building a new renown, and they weren't planning on building a new Queen Elizabeth and Valiant, which is what's happening here, the Flight 3 class destroyer. So they are planning on retrofitting the Flight 2A, um, Arleigh Burks, um, but they're going to build the flight the new Flight 3s with this as stock. So I guess, once again, it comes back to Drax's argument, why the hell are we building a new there's nothing really wrong with with upgrading the old one mm. but why are we having to build a new class that's an upgraded old one and yeah because I mean, we in, haven't in got term, a new design in terms of power requirement in terms of the power de- density and all the the new systems they're adding but they're it's effectively analogous to replacing the machinery when they modernized battleships in the late mm. 1930s it's like yeah you can get a more compact power plant system which allows you to save displacement which in the 1930s you used to put in more anti-aircraft guns and more armor and so forth and in this case you're just using more you're using the space and the additional power to power new weapon systems but you are still ultimately (coughs) fitting stuff to older ships which you know if uh, as proof of concept even if even if they're new builds yeah as as proof of concept it might be a viable thing you know if you're gonna for for one for once in your life actually you know make sure a weapon system works before you design a brand new hull around the weapon that you haven't tested properly yet um but it's got to come at uh, is you know it's got to come th- through at a point where it's a case of okay we, we're making sure all of this works and then we're going to incorporate it into a new design which will be able to exploit it better <laughs> not um Oh well, you know we we we've patched on a new upgrade to our old ships, therefore we don't need new ones. Um, which yeah. I yeah. guess that was part of the argument with you know, um, Repulse and Renown and not mm. Repulse but with Renown and yeah. and Valiant and Queen Elizabeth uh, didn't really help speed up the um, production of uh, Anson and How, did it? No, but then at the same time. Uh, at least when they were met proposing those modifications, they were being relatively realistic about we're going to modernize the Queen Elizabeths and the battle cruisers, and that will give them enough service life to tide us over until we, um, we get the lions, lions, lions into until we get the lions into service. Yeah. So that yeah. there was a clear vision forward as to what this was. What this they weren't trying was to buy twenty years; they were trying to buy five, ten years of service. Hmm. So, and yeah, that's that. That's the thing. It's being realistic. It's a case of how many years of service are we really buying with this? Whereas these days, a lot of governments seem determined if they were faced with that same same design decision in as the UK had in the nineteen thirties, where you know they would look they would look at uh, the capabilities and specifications of a modernized war spite or a noun or valiant and go. Well, you know, we we've we it's good enough. We've upgraded our older ships and it that's cheaper than mm. building a new ship. So, we don't need new ships. Yeah. That would be the modern British approach. <laughs> you know, if I if I bet you if somebody had come along and and conv- tried to convince uh the treasury that they could fit 80% of the systems of a type 26 into a type 23 for half the cost, the Treasury would have jumped at just stuffing them all into a Type 23 and then going, no, we don't need Type 26 anymore. I I have to say that is sort of what they've done. And there is now a a general conversation about some of the Type 23s lasting longer in service. 
because you must remember they proved concept the Type 23 sea, sea scepters, and now they're fitting with naval strike missile, and they're going, well, hang on, we've got the, the, some of these ships have got the capabilities we're looking at fitting into the uh, into the Type 26s. Should we keep them so around? Don't need to build uh, them more, maybe build more Type 26s. There was even a conversation I had with somebody, and they're going, well, actually, what we think is the Type 32 will actually be the recon uh, reconditioned Type for, uh, 23s, because then we just have to spin, uh, spin we're just it's just spinning the three and the two around. <laughs> and you sit there and go you are being on a, and they were actually there have been actual conversations i've had with people suggesting this and i'm going this is you are talking about doing this with a 30 40 year old hull you absolute frigating moron <laughs> and you know how okay. polite i am normally imagine what it takes to make me tell that to someone to their face so, i am usually quite a polite well, well raised final... person whose mother would kill him well, for saying for... those things <laughs> yes, not not to mention your poodle. Um, the poodle would also kill. For the, him, but he'd, for he'd the final subject, first. then for the final subject, then toroidal powers. Yes, this is quite this the thing, final subject. Is the US Navy uh, being even more stupid on dry docks? But okay, no, no, we're, no, we're, 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 we're running, running out of time. hopefully by that, hopefully by then, we'll know a bit more reasoning behind it as to whether it's Mm. the the dry doxing, as whether it's just purely a political stunt, or that um, that something has actually changed in the twenty years since they first realised this was a problem. But this top secret, ultra brand new design concept for a propeller that's been around since the age of Archimedes back in two hundred and thirty-four BC is a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ah, tell us about it, Drake. Well, it, it, it deeply appeals to my engineering heart because I, I do like it when some when things come out and they're like, what, what is, is it first? Okay, so everyone's vaguely aware of what a propeller looks like, whether it be a, an air propeller or a ship propeller. It's, um, you know, often called a screw propeller. It's a set of inclined blades. Look at a desk fan. It's basically the same thing, just a slightly different pitch and surface area. Um, and And that's kind of been the way that things have been done for a long time and even the uh, hyper secret secret squirrel stuff that um gets stuck on a lot of modern navy ships is still to a certain extent a derivative of that we've seen some of the pictures you know they they look a bit more like very very heavily bladed scimitar blades as opposed to the deeper pitch single larger blades that we used to but it's all a variation on a theme um but in the i mean that there there's there are different ways of going about it uh if you want to you know make something spin to produce thrust in in a given direction um and the main thing that these toroidal propellers are offering is um silence or noise reduction which is going to be quite handy i think but there are, but even then there are other ways of doing it there's um asymmetric propellers which are your more conventional screw propellers but then when you alter either the size surface area length etc of the blades or even their positioning so that they're not directly opposite each other or in a regular pattern um and that can reduce noise as well but uh, the thing that the thing that entertains me the most about it is that it's being pushed as a brand new uh thing whereas you know there were some attempts to get toroidal propellers to work back when propellers were first being developed for ships in the 1800s. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, let, let's just say that given 
There were experiments with them in World War II, weren't there, as well? Well, yeah. The thing I seem is, to remember a destroyer thing. being fitted with some and tested for, with it. Well, broadly speaking, what I would say is when you see these kinds of things being announced in public, they've probably been around for a while. There, there's, there's. I'm not necessarily saying that toroidal propellers are on any particular ship or submarine, but there are good reasons why, even with the knowledge of the more advanced screw propeller designs that's now beginning to leak out, but have been on active warships for 20, 30 years, there's there's probably good reason things like the um, propulsion units of the Astutes and the Virginias and Seawolves, etc., are still heavily shrouded when they're in dry dock. Well, the Astutes use impellers, don't they? Yeah, they use thrusters. Well, yes, but the Trafalgar class used pump jet propulsors as well. But yeah. you know, think of how old the Trafalgar glass submarines are relative to, you know, when that technology was introduced to the civilian market and anything other oh. than a jet ski. Yeah, um, it's a it's a case of uh, be very very careful, presuming that the ones you see when, especially in terms of um, some of the ships which we see when they're produced on the side and they come out and everyone sees the publicity photos of them, people go, ah, yes, we're taking lots of photos. Be very careful of believing those are the actual in-service propellers. Yes, it wouldn't be the first time a navy has gone. Yes, those are the propellers which go on each ship when it's getting launched, and everyone gets night and take nice pictures of because it goes down this box and get it to where it's being fixed. And then once it's there in dry dock, and we've got it in a nice quiet place near the yard somewhere, uh, you know, HGVs turn up, things get moved around, cranes happen. Yeah, I mean, one of the main, apart from the noise reduction, one of the um, big things that I can see with these toroidal propellers as you know helping basically from from an engineering standpoint is compared to asymmetric propellers a toroidal propeller is still symmetric which is going to help which will help massively with manufacturing tolerances especially if you're going to use it in this in the civilian world because in you know if if you let's say for sake of argument that there was a submarine class that was going to use asymmetric propellers to cut down on its propeller noise then you can afford to be extremely exacting and extremely costly and extremely handcrafted if you only need a couple of dozen sets. If you're going to market something that's going to go on, kind of like the article that we were looking at earlier, um, suggests something like, you know, 50,000 quadcopters, cheap commercial quadcopters, or, um, you know, 400 merchant liners. People can't afford to spend... You know, almost as much as they paid for the original device on a bunch of fancy, slightly quieter propellers. But if you've got something that's symmetric, that's much, much easier to mass manufacture. Um, in there's there's a lot of there's a lot of explanation as to how they work. But I I suppose one one of the way one of the ways that it works in terms of noise reduction and so forth is due to the way they cut through the air. So when you if you look at a toroidal propeller from a top-down perspective it kind of looks like a figure of eight in a way but when you think about how that propeller is now rotating that effectively means that you've got depending on which side of the propeller you're looking at you're looking at either a front swept or a back swept wing coming round and if you look at a more conventional propeller if you if you think about it at any given point sweeping through the air it's effectively a straight wing cutting through the air to generate lift and we know 
already from you know 50 60 years of experience with high-speed aircraft in the transonic and supersonic regions that there are limits to what you can do with a straight wing and you know if you hear i mean discounting the engine noise um it, and actually probably useful for looking at things on landing if you think about the early straight wing jets like um, the supermarine attacker uh, for example or the gloucester meteor if you listen to them in flight and if you're able to filter out the engine noise you can usually hear at high speeds there's a lot of wing noise and when they're coming into land you can usually hear when the throttles down you can hear a lot of wing noise whereas if you look at something like a vulcan with a you know delta wing swept back wing or even a victor with with the more conventional looking wing but but definitely swept the wing noise is significantly reduced um and you know there's even the sweep back on modern airliners okay part of it's for efficiency at the speeds that they go up but part of it is also wing noise reduction because but, but, you, but they're and they're linked aren't they yeah it's all about those vortices and the drag that's exactly so, so with and the that is these hmm. these propellers are supposed to be 20 percent more economic on yeah. fuel so with a and with a toroidal propeller where basically you have a constantly swept surface that's being pushed through the air rather than a straight effectively straight surface you're going to get a significant reduction in in noise plus the fact that um you know if you have if you have your like your twin blade propeller twin blade conventional propeller if you put a toroidal setup in that same layout you also now have two lifting surfaces now that obviously doesn't result in double the lift we know with biplanes you know just sticking an extra wing on a biplane doesn't mean it has double the lift of it it's monoplane equivalent but it is an efficiency um it, it, with biplanes obviously you have to balance the additional lift versus the additional drag and so forth with propellers it's a slightly easier thing because the propeller is proportionally a lot less weight um to the to the um overall aircraft and it's supposed to go through the air at high speed anyway um so yeah it, it there, there's a lot to recommend them uh, i'm looking forward to seeing how they perform um in the future although i can you see now the, the one thing that this article is talking about because obviously it's talking about that you can use them in the water or in the air the one thing i'm going to be extremely amused to see how it pans out is with drones because we already, I mean, anyone who pays much attention already knows that, you know, police and military drones are mysteriously a heck of a lot quieter than your conventional <laughs> you know, DJI camera drone, um, for pretty much the reasons I just outlined. Mm -hmm. um, although a lot of the, those police designs, et cetera, tend to use asymmetric propellers. Um, but when, although it's not strictly naval related, if they introduce these toroidal propellers as to the mass market or to be honest i suspect some people will just release 3d printable designs um i'm i'm but, really intrigued to see how this affects drone laws because on the one hand at the moment drones go you know, screaming about people can hear them coming or hear them if they're hovering overhead to a certain degree and um you can be charged with causing a public nuisance because there's a screaming buzzing drone over everyone's head if they introduce toroidal propellers, that may not be quite so much of a problem. I mean, you'll still hear them lower down, but if you've got one at 100 feet above the above you, you may not actually be able to hear it anymore, which on the one hand Speaking... reduces the noise problem. On the other hand, it makes it much easier for people to spy on people. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> on the reduction of noise thing, if you go down, uh, we 
we did find an article about these toroidal propellers, and one of the things it has done it attracted me to the article was it had this graph which compares DGI standard, DGI wingtips, and LL toroidal, which apparently are able to be 3D printed. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking of a certain gentleman's on this channel's drone and wondering if he might like to do some testing and get a 3D printer to print it. Well, I, I have some... Um... I do have some three. Uh, I do have a three D printer. I just need to be bothered to actually, you know, enact it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other, the other problem, the other problem is that you've got, you've also got to remember with it comes three D printing is materials, yeah. because three D resin is a great thing to make models out of. Um, I would be slightly leery of putting of three D printing a propeller and sticking it on a on one of my drones in large part because resin tends to be a little bit brittle and fragile and the last thing you want is revving it up to however many thousands of rpm <laughs> a dji drone runs at and then have the whole thing disintegrate in mid-flight well, but if someone else wants well, to print it in a suitable yeah. material and send me some toroidal propellers to experiment with <laughs> yeah oh well, well, that's the end that's of a our kind of happy return. Hey, I'd just like to point out, we've ended on a happy note. Yay. Uh, well, oh, my God. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's hope it doesn't set a precedent, eh? Oh, good Lord. How will we survive? But we have ended on a happy note. Thank you very much for being here, Jens. Mm-hmm. Enjoyed know. it. Good to talk to you. Good to get back to it all. Thank and, you, Ron. Um, yeah. Hopefully, we're not, let's hope we're not too much on the nose this year. Yeah, yeah. If we keep getting things right in advance, I'm, I think we're probably going to end up. Well, that, that conference was bad enough. The, the conference we, the Desi conference, and we're going to it again this year, hopefully. Um, the conference we went to was bad enough, where we people were going, how do you keep getting these things right? If I think we you keep two, doing you two guys that, are going to have to start. You two guys are going to have to start recording some bilge episodes at some of these events with uh, with random people that you um, sit down for coffees with or whatever. We could do that next time. We could ask them if they'll let us do that. Yeah, I think you should. All because, right. you know, it will actually put us put, uh, put our uh, crazy ideas to the test in the real world. <laughs> we'll just get us in on oh. an official war games, official naval war games course. Oh. Yeah. We could have fun that with that. Fun. In any case, right. we will see Probably. you all later, people. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.